My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. surprising because a lot of people here in Niagara think that, oh, you know, racism is really a big problem in Toronto or Brampton, but not really here. But actually, it's the other way around. And not just in the police or school board, we're seeing people getting harassed from the neighbors, from their landlords, and they're just not prepared for it. That's the voice of Saleh Waziruddin. He's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Saleh Waziruddin lives in Niagara region in southern Ontario. This region includes the city of St. Catharines, where Waziruddin lives now, the city of Niagara Falls, where he lived in earlier years, and about 10 other municipalities, mainly small cities, small towns, and rural areas. If you were to judge based on what shows up in the mainstream media, you would think in Ontario that racism is mostly a problem in the larger cities, like Toronto and its environs. But according to Waziruddin, things are actually worse in smaller centres. Ballooning housing costs have led many black, indigenous, and racialized, or BIPOC, people to move from the greater Toronto area to Niagara in recent years, and he said that when they get there, quote, they're experiencing racism that they've never seen before, at levels they have never seen before, and never imagined, end quote. Waziruddin is currently an executive committee member for the Niagara Region Anti-Racism Association, or NRARA. It was founded four years ago. Up to that point, there had been a different organization doing anti-racist work in Niagara. However, as a result of anti-black racism in that organization, three individuals left and founded the NRARA, and the original organization soon disbanded. Uh, and Waziruddin was not one of the founding members and joined a little later. Partly as a consequence of these circumstances, the NRARA has been committed from the start to being led by BIPOC people themselves. Under the broad banner of anti-racist activism, different organizations can have a wide range of goals and approaches. For the NRARA, it means a quite specific set of things. It means, for one thing, supporting individuals who are facing direct experiences of racism. And it means pushing local institutions to change their policies and practices in anti-racist ways. Supporting individuals who are facing racism can look like a lot of different things. In a recent case, a black woman in Fort Erie received anonymous letters threatening to burn her house down because of loud music, and the NRARA held a public rally in front of her house, took up space, and made it clear that her neighbors from across the region would support her. In many other cases, it's much lower profile. For instance, just having one or a few people quietly accompany the individual in risky contexts in their neighborhood, or when they're dealing with organizations that have been treating them in racist ways. Challenging local institutions has meant things like pushing for police reform and for changes by municipal governments. For the NRARA, this has meant delegating, lobbying, participating in official processes and doing media work, and other grassroots methods as well. Waziruddin contrasts the association's efforts to challenge police racism with two other broad approaches. On the one hand, he's quite dismissive of how some community groups make minimal or no demands for change and act as willing participants in police public relations efforts. 
On the other hand, he says that while he is in favor of police abolition in the long term, the group is also more open to smaller reforms in the meantime than some groups that center abolition. Currently, they're making demands for an end to racial profiling and to police involvement in mental health checks, as well as in favor of the use of body-worn cameras and a more robust system of locally controlled civilian oversight. In the past, they've won changes like the disaggregation of the reporting of hate crime data, and in the near future, they plan to release a report outlining the disproportionate use of force by police in Niagara against black and indigenous people. When it comes to local governments, they're demanding that each one have a citizen advisory committee specifically focused on anti-racism, and others for other issues, rather than a catch-all diversity committee. They've succeeded in St. Catharines and Niagara Falls, and are likely to succeed with the Niagara Regional Government. They also want to see local governments make better use of other tools that are within their power, like purchasing and hiring policies that will address barriers faced by BIPOC people, and the use of bylaws in responding to racist symbols and harassment. I speak with Wazira Dean about the Niagara Region Anti-Racism Association. I'm Saleh Wazira Dean, and I'm an anti-racist activist in St. Catharines, Ontario. I'm an executive committee member of the Niagara Region Anti-Racism Association, which was founded about four years ago on the principle of being a BIPOC-led anti-racist organization throughout the Niagara Region. Even though I was born in Canada, I grew up outside of Canada. And I went to my undergraduate education in the United States, in Pittsburgh. So I was living in Pittsburgh as a Canadian and very afraid of getting involved in anything political because I wasn't a U.S. citizen and I didn't want to get deported and lose my job and everything, which eventually happened to me, by the way. But shortly after 9-11, there was an Ethiopian man who was wrongly arrested as a terrorist. This is in 2002. And the FBI had said that, you know, there's nothing wrong with them letting go. But the prosecutor and the police were still charging him and basically made him disappear in jail and were drugging him against his will. And there was a lot of violations of his rights. So nobody was standing up for him or doing anything for him. So I thought that, look, even though I'm not a U.S. citizen, I've got to do something. And so with some other people launched a year-long defense campaign to free him, which was successful. We got the major charges dropped. And then I got involved into a lot more related kind of activism, like defending people arrested for failing to do what's called special registration, where males from certain countries, almost all of the Muslim, except for North Korea, had to register with the government. There were a couple of young Jordanian men who'd forgotten to, and then they realized they forgot to. And when they went to register, they got arrested and the government tried to deport them. So there were different cases like that or discrimination cases. There's an umbrella group of mosques in Pittsburgh called the Islamic Council of Greater Pittsburgh. I became the anti-discrimination chair of that council. So that's kind of how I got started with anti-racism. What brought you back to Canada? Well, it was courtesy of the Homeland Security Department. I was working in the U.S. and every year I had to go to the border. Uh, and that was to renew his visa? I was working under Treaty NAFTA. And they started making trouble for me in 2004. But in 2006, they told me, we're not letting you in anymore. We're barring you from coming back. And actually, even though I was born in Canada, I had only lived here briefly as a kid. So I didn't have any connections in Canada. I had no relatives, didn't know one place from the other. I mean, I, I was a kid in Montreal, but, you know, I had been a long time since I lived in Montreal. This happened at the border in Niagara, and I just decided to stay there because Niagara is just as good a place as anywhere else in Canada. I thought, you know, I don't really know anyone. And so then I ended up eventually getting involved with activism here and anti-racism activism here just by happenstance of geography. So recognizing that folks elsewhere in the country often don't know much more about Niagara than the famous falls, what's the community like? 
There's about half a million people in the Niagara region. There's about 12 municipalities. A lot of the areas are rural or small town, small city. Niagara Falls itself is very depressed. There was actually kind of a scandalous video on YouTube a few years ago about how just a short distance from the tourist area, a lot of places are run down. But one thing interesting that's happening is that because we're not actually part of the GTA or Greater Toronto area, but we're very close to it. They call it the Golden Horseshoe right around Lake Ontario. A lot of people are moving out of Toronto and Brampton, the Greater Toronto area for cheaper housing in Niagara. And what we're finding actually in the Niagara Region Anti-Racism Association is that a lot of BIPOC people, you know, Black, Indigenous people of color who are moving, they're experiencing racism that they've never seen before, at levels they've never seen before, never imagined. Which is surprising because a lot of people here in Niagara think that, oh, you know, racism is really a big problem in Toronto or Brampton, but not really here. But actually, it's the other way around. Toronto and Brampton's police and school boards have had scandalous levels of racism to where the province has even had to step in in Ontario and say, you need to follow this action plan and so on. But there's no such admission of a problem in Niagara. The school board is doing some anti-racism measures, but the police officials have even denied that there's systemic racism in the Niagara police. And not just in the police or the school board, we're seeing people getting harassed from the neighbors, from their landlords, and they're just not prepared for it. How did the NRARA come to be? There was another anti-racism organization before. And the three people who co-founded the Niagara Region Anti-Racism Association, I'm not one of them. They experienced anti-Black racism in the previous organization, and that organization was disbanded, actually, for anti-Black racism. So the people who co-founded it, two of them are Black, one is a woman, and two are transgender people. And they wanted a different kind of anti-racism organization, and that's what attracted a lot of people to it. Unfortunately, one of our co-founders, Renee Martin, passed away a few years ago, and one of the other co-founders has had to move away for work. But one of the three is still involved and is on the executive committee of the Niagara Region Anti-Racism Association. They were pretty assertive from the beginning that anti-racism initiatives needed to be led by BIPOC people. And many actors will experience this in many organizations, but there's a lot of behaviors that happen in activist organizations that are exhausting to BIPOC people. For example, our experiences being invalidated or not all, but some white activists just trying to compare our experience to theirs or even trying to derail the discussion, take it into some kind of area of debate that might be interesting for them, but it's got really nothing to do with the work of countering white supremacy. And so they've been very assertive, I've tried to be as well, to just call out this kind of behavior. In fact, in the beginning of our meetings, we have a set of guidelines we've established from practical experiences we've had with this kind of behavior. And we just warn people at a time, you will be called out if you do this kind of behavior that's derailing the meeting, derailing our work, and has proven exhausting to BIPOC members. The Niagara Region Anti-Racism Association should be at least one organization where BIPOC members can feel like they don't have to put up with this BS and they can focus on anti-racism. What did the process of building the organization through reaching out to and engaging with the community look like? There is a mismatch between what a lot of people who want to join or do anti-racism, what they imagine it to be and what our actual work is. I mean, sometimes it can be bizarre, like just people who conceive of anti-racism as something to do with only language and, and words. But there are people who say, we just want to protest or we just want to, one person literally said, I just want to yell against Trump. I mean, there's other organizations where they can do that. That's not what we're doing. But we haven't found that many people to do the kind of work that we want to do. We have found some. So, for example, we support individuals experiencing racism in individual cases. And sometimes that involves 
simply showing up and showing support at their house so the neighbors who are harassing them can see that they're not alone and supporting them. And we might only find a few people volunteering to do that. Or for example, we have a program of police reform where we're challenging what the police are doing. But a lot of activists want to get involved in efforts that are more collaborative with the police. And frankly, in my opinion, are public relations exercises where the police can say, look, we're working with these BIPOC people, but not actually do anything different. And some of the BIPOC activists can say, oh, look, you know, we're important. We're dealing with the police, but they haven't actually made any demands. So the direction we're going, we hope, is actually challenging white supremacy. And not everybody is ready for that. So sometimes we do have a churn where people join, but this is not the organization for them. Let's dive into some of that work in more detail. Maybe start with the kinds of support that your organization gives to individuals. So it does range. Not everybody is ready for going public with their experience of racism. So it can be as simple as finding the right service agency for someone, like free legal aid or somebody to help with landlord-tenant issues. But it can go all the way to a public campaign. There's a Black woman in Fort Erie, which is on one edge of the Niagara Peninsula, who got anonymous letters threatening to burn her house down with her and her child and family in it just because they said that she was playing her music loud, even though, by the way, the bylaw enforcement didn't find any problem with her music volume, has never charged her. And so we did a rally, a public rally in front of her house saying that her neighbors in Niagara are not going to let anybody burn her house down and that we're going to defend her. And that got some support from the neighborhood as well. So that's one extreme example, because in that case, we were able to do public support. But in many other cases, the person's not ready to go public. And so we're just maybe if they want to go on walks, we'll find a volunteer to escort them so that the people who are harassing them will see that there's somebody else there. They're not just picking on one BIPOC person. Or we will follow up with them and help them navigate through the different social service agencies. And as I mentioned, a chunk of these people who are asking for support are not from Niagara. They've moved here and they're just not prepared for the kind of racism they're experiencing. They never saw anything like this in Brampton or Toronto. What has your work challenging systemic racism and policing involved? We do have a program of police reform with 10 points. First of all, there's two other approaches to police reform different from us. On the one hand, you have people who are just going to collaborate with the police's public relations efforts. And this is quite literal. Like the police at one point made a presentation to the regional council. There's two levels of municipal government in Niagara. There's the region and then there's the lower term municipalities of each city. And one regional councilor even literally said that we're basically asking the police to do what they're already doing so they can come back and tell us, oh, we've done this, that we've done what you asked us when they were really doing it anyway. So that's kind of a collaborative approach. On the other hand, you have people who say they're taking an abolitionist approach, that they want to abolish the police. And frankly, I also want to abolish the police, ultimately. But there's a difference because they are against any kind of reform. They say that, you know, a reform is only a half measure, that what we need to do is just abolish the police. And the problem that I have with that and our organization, the Niagara Region Anti-Racism Association, took a specific discussion and vote on this question. And we said that we are for both small changes and big changes because we believe the small changes are what you need to build up the support to where you can get the bigger changes. So for example, the easiest thing that we're asking the police to do is to end racial profiling. The police have kept changing the names for that, street checks, carding. Now it's being called the collection of identifying information. The police's own data show that when they do that, they disproportionately stop 
Black and Indigenous people. One year, one third of the people were Indigenous, but they stopped. Indigenous people make up only about 4% of the population here. And one year, I think it was 12% of the people they stopped were Black, and Black people are only about, at the time, only 2% of the population. The thing is that they stopped doing it in practice. And during the pandemic, the provincial government wanted them to do street checks according for the pandemic, and they refused to do it then. But they refused to drop it as an official policy. And when they were challenged on this, they said, well, it's regulated provincially. The police chief, in my opinion, was being obtuse. He kept trying to go back to saying it's provincially regulated. Eventually, he had to concede that, yes, they could drop it. We also want body cameras. And we want to shift the funding from welfare checks, mental health checks. And there's one other category as well that make up a lot of the calls to a purely civilian agency. And that's kind of defunding the police from at least these areas. The interesting thing is the police does have programs in Niagara now where there'll be a mental health worker or nurse accompanying the police, but we don't want that. We want these calls to be responded to purely by civilians and not by the police. We've delegated at city and regional councils pushing for police reforms and forcing a vote and let people see where the elected officials stand. For example, with ending racial profiling, only four of, I think, the 32 regional councillors voted to drop that. And so people could see these all the other elected officials who are not even voting to drop something simple like racial profiling. We also comment in the media about reports that come out from the police and try to show it critically. For example, the police used to report hate crimes just as an aggregate, just like there's a total of 17 hate crimes in Niagara. Well, where did they happen? Which groups were targeted? When did they happen? Was it graffiti or was it an assault? What was it? And now the police do report those details. And so we can see specifically, you know, LGBTQQI plus community has been targeted. There's been anti-Semitic attacks. There's been anti-Black attacks. We can see which ones are assaults, where they're happening, when they're happening. So through public pressure like that, we do get some results. Also participate in demonstrations and speak at those to bring attention to what the police is doing or what they aren't doing or what we want them to be doing. The police and many other institutions in Niagara are far behind what other places are doing. For example, the Niagara police have money set aside for body cameras, and they said that they would just do a study and follow that. But the police chief is saying they're waiting for it to be provincially regulated. But in the meanwhile, what's happening is police department after police department in Ontario has adopted body cams to where Niagara is left behind and, you know, a big chunk of the province is already doing it. And in at least one of the cities, they said, look, we don't know if body cams are effective or not, but we know people are asking for them. And so we're going to do it. And in Niagara, we have had Black community members delegate and saying they want these body cameras, that it's at least a tool that could be used potentially for more accountability for police. But there's another problem because actually there's very little public control over the police force. The municipal council only gets a yes or no on the budget of the police. And if they say no, that can be appealed. Even the police board, which is less than half elected officials, they don't have operational control of the police. They can control the budget and some of the policies, but actually only the police chief has control of the operations. And what's kind of ironic is the police chief here has said, oh, you know, we have a lot more accountability than the United States. Actually, it's the opposite. All the United States police departments are controlled by the municipality. And the elected officials and police board can control everything about the policy of the police, oversee the police. Over here, it's just up to the police chief. And as long as they say they're following the police act, which is very vague, then they can get away with that. There were a lot of demonstrations around the time of the murder of George Floyd, and that put some pressure for some reform. But unfortunately, it didn't translate into actual reform. It translated more into public relations efforts. And in this work around policing, are there any demands that you're making that are more provincial in focus? 
Well, there are some, for example, we want to change the police act so that there is civilian control. And by civilian, we mean people who've never been police officers, because sometimes what happens is there'll be civilian appointees, but they're actually former police officers. And we, we want local civilian control, not just somebody appointed from the province from Toronto, but for locally. And we want the BIPOC communities represented. And we want experts on police accountability represented. So that kind of change has to happen at the provincial level. And you know, that is kind of a roadblock to municipal change. So we do call for that as well. But we are focusing a lot on what municipalities can do because municipalities and cities do have a role to play in anti-racism. And it kind of lets them off the hook if we focus only on provincial and federal action. Because city governments can say, oh, yeah, you know, we'll advocate for this and that. And they don't actually have to give up anything. But there's things we're demanding from cities as well, partially through municipal anti-racism committees. These are advisory committees that are part of the city government of appointed residents who give recommendations to city council, which makes a political decision. You know, there's some very easy things like bylaws against street harassment or bylaws against hate signs or even policies like a diverse supplier policy where it is a big bid for a contract that you make sure at least one of the bidders is what's called a diverse supplier, you know, either BIPOC owned or woman owned or LGBTQIA plus owned or owned by a person with a disability. But the other angle of this is that in North America, not just in Niagara, there's been a trend to fold anti-racism advisory committees and water them down into broader diversity committees. And diversity and inclusion is not the same thing as anti-racism. My favorite way to say this, there is a local elected official who correctly, 100% correctly, says they're the first Polish Canadian to be elected to their office. And that's correct. That may be diversity, that may be inclusion. That's definitely not anti-racism. Diversity and inclusion are very important. And diversity includes a whole range of issues. The problem is that when you do that, you don't get the time to focus on anti-racism, as well as we also advocate for separate LGBTQIA plus committees as well. So a committee that's working on diversity inclusion will have a whole range of issues to tackle. And that's all very important, but they don't have time then to focus on what an anti-racism advisory committee would focus on, like changes in bylaws or specific barriers to hiring BIPOC people that need to be broken down in employment equity and specific anti-racism measures that are being taken in other municipalities that we think municipalities in Niagara need to catch up on. So we've been pushing to have separate anti-racism committees, which we succeeded in St. Catharines and Niagara Falls. At the regional level, we did get the region to say they're going to do that, but actually the staff has pushed it off till December. A lot of municipal governments don't want to touch anything with the word racism in it. You talked earlier about how experiences of racism differ between, say, Toronto and Brampton versus the Niagara region. How about the experience of doing anti-racism work? How's that different in Niagara? There are a lot of significant differences because places like Toronto or Brampton or even Hamilton, just up the highway from us about half an hour, have established anti-racism organizations and BIPOC organizations and institutions, which has staff. We have nothing like that in Niagara. The city of Toronto has not only anti-racism work going on within the staff, they have specifically anti-Black racism programs anti-Islamophobia programs, all that's very highly developed. We don't have that in Niagara. It's perverse because the racism people are experiencing is worse than they experienced in Brampton and Toronto. We're seeing statistics. We're going to come out with a report shortly showing that actually the use of force by police, when you look at the stats by race, it's actually worse than Toronto and Brampton on multiple orders. So we have actually, I would say, a bigger problem 
but we don't have the resources. We don't have the organizations. We don't have the institutions. We don't have the funding. And of course, even in Toronto, Brampton, Hamilton, there's still a lot more need for organizations and staff and programs. Why is it important that your organization both supports individuals and works for systemic change? And how are those two levels of work related? Well, of course, it's important to help people in need, but we're not a social service agency. Like We're not there just to be a charity, as important as that is, and just only help people in need. We're hoping that people who are in need of help will see that there's an importance to going public with their case and addressing the systemic problems underlying what they're experiencing and advocating for systemic change. And that means something political. That means changing policy. That means holding elected officials to account through maybe every 10 people we help, one of them maybe is in a position where they want to go public and then we actually can bring political pressure and public pressure. I think you can't really do systemic change without also doing what might be seen as tedious or not necessarily always rewarding, that rewarding individual cases and help. Sometimes there's very limited things we can do for someone or that someone wants to do. If somebody doesn't want to take on the system in a broader way, we have to respect that. You have to be doing both to see where that one chance, that one opportunity where there is something to take something that individual is experiencing and convert that into something systemic and public and that gets attention to the problem and that gets action from the government. What advice would you give to BIPOC listeners located in other places like Niagara, where there's lots of racism, but not anything like the established anti-racism infrastructure of the bigger cities, if they want to figure out how they can start taking action in terms of anti-racism? Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of opportunity. And by that, I mean that there are a lot of areas that are very basic, kind of very easy to get something done and that other places are doing that people can push for in their own areas that may not be the big cities. So for example, even getting your municipal government to have an anti-racism advisory committee would be a big step. There may be a diversity committee, even getting them to add anti-racism as part of their mandate and then making a case for a separate anti-racism committee to focus just on anti-racism and then they could work on catching the municipality up to what other municipalities have already accomplished in terms of bylaws and policies for anti-racism. That's one easy way. I think the school board and the police are definitely one set of institutions that every place has that there's a lot of work to be done and there's models for work to be done from the bigger cities of what they're doing. You could even just simply take what's being done in, let's say, Toronto or Peel or Brampton in Ontario or the big cities in other provinces and say, look, they have this. Why can't we have this and push for that kind of policy? But also just getting your name out, you know, and making it known that there is an anti-racism group here, like we do with the Niagara Region Anti-Racism Association through our social media or website, nrara.org or the NRARA on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Then people will know that when they experience racism, they might they might not even know about the organization. But when they go on the Internet to search, they'll find you and then they'll approach you to help them with their individual case and If you get more and more volunteers working on those kind of situations, you may find that one case where the person wants to go public and where it's really a compelling case where people will get it. And then you can use that to change people's understanding of white supremacy and racism in your area. You have been listening to my interview with Saleh Waziruddin of the Niagara Region Anti-Racism Association. To find out more about the group, go to nrara.org. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 